Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, we're going all the way over to the States, specifically to Kentucky, to be joined by Jason Falls. Jason is a keynote speaker, host of two podcasts, Digging Deeper and Winfluence, a senior influence strategist at Cornet, and probably best described as a veteran of the PR industry, <laughs> uh, recognized by the likes of Entrepreneur, the BBC, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Business Week. I could go on as a social and digital thought leader. Jason, you're very welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Delighted to have you. Uh, regular listeners to the show on this side of the Atlantic Ocean, although you're not our first guest, we probably had seven or eight guests from the US, um, will know that we start with early influences. So from Kentucky, are you born and raised there? I was actually born in Southern West Virginia, so very close, just right across the border of mm. the state, uh, but raised in Eastern Kentucky, lived there from the time I was four years old on. And, um, you know, when you when you start talking about early influences, my mother was the the editor of the local newspaper. So when I was very young and so I, I was kind of born into the communications world and that's where my earliest probably influences come from. I always wanted to have a byline in the paper, see my name in print, and then eventually, you know, work that into getting into radio and broadcasting and whatnot. And that sort of started me on my path. I know that when you were 14, you you got into DJing. One of my questions is going to be, um, you went to Moorhead State University, studied communications. Uh, and I guess the influence and interest around that came from your mother. Yeah, it was it was a combination of things. Um, you know, the the reason that I wound up working at the radio station when I was fourteen was, was kind of a nonsensical reason. Um, it was the summer before my freshman year in high school, and my mother kept giving me chores lists to do at home, and I didn't want to do chores anymore. So she said, "Well, if you get a job, then you don't have to do chores." So I, I marched myself into the local <laughs> radio station and said, "I want to be a DJ," and they said, "Okay, well, go read this." copy on the on microphone in there and they listened to me and I you know kind of faked a, a radio voice and they thought well you sound pretty good we'll put you on the air and so it just kind of stumbled into it but I really ended up liking it and of course you know being um, sort of behind the microphone and or in front of the camera kind of the center of attention was you kind of fed into my ego a little bit and I had a very different job than all of my other friends who were working at convenience stores or the movie theater or whatever so I thought it was really cool and I just kind of stuck with it and, uh, and really enjoyed broadcasting, really enjoyed performing. And then when I got to you know college university, um, I wanted to study it because I wanted to make a career out, of, career out of it. And while my career sort of went into sports journalism and broadcasting and then kind of veered back over into public relations, I've always been in that sort of, you know, that lane, if you will. Very cool. Um, I feel like we're two of the same people, although you're, in America, and I'm in Ireland, and I say that because started out as a DJ, similar to myself. You're a fan of whiskey. I'm a fan of whiskey. I actually invested and bought a, a cask of uh, Irish whiskey, Dingle, is the distillery uh, nice. last year, and it's it'll be ready in 2028. So I'm looking forward to that. A couple of things I know about you though: uh, whiskey fan, already alluded mm -hmm. to that. A father, a soccer fan, mm -hmm. uh, a dog owner, 
You lived in places like West Virginia, Alabama, and New Jersey. So yeah. before we get into all good things around your book, what's one thing you're into or curious about that not a lot of people would know about you? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I have a fascination with, um, as a lot of people do my age, I'm, I'm in my late 40s, early 50s. When you get to this age, you start thinking a lot about your ancestry and genealogy and whatnot. And so I've been doing a lot of work uh, in what little spare time I have. Um, going through my grandmother's old genealogy notes and family trees and things like that. I've actually traced uh, my family uh, lineage back to uh, Scotland and Ireland. So we're uh, more wow. alike uh, than you may have thought. Um, my father's side of the of the family comes uh, from the Inverness area of Scotland, going back mm-hmm. into the 1600s, as, as far back as I can go. Um, and then my mother uh, is actually her uh, maiden name is O'Brien. So we're, we're Irish. Uh, and so that goes back into, I can trace back into the late 1700s there so far. So wow. I've been playing around with the genealogy, trying to figure out where I come from and, and if I have any famous ancestors and things of that nature. Given the second name of your mother, sounds like you're from a county called Cork in Ireland, which is the south of Ireland, down the south. Beautiful county, probably the second largest city in Ireland. I've got a couple of friends in America, similar to your age, that have the same second name, and they've been over to to visit, and they all speak highly. Probably why whiskey continues to run in your veins. <laughs> it never left when it left, or it left Scotland with whoever left Scotland. Yeah, I, ha- I have a feeling my uh, my family heritage is, uh, c- uh, includes a long line of bootleggers and moonshiners, so that that wouldn't surprise me. Something to be proud of. Um, <laughs> you wrote a book, um, and in my eyes, it's to reframe the way people think when they hear the term influencer marketing. Um, and as a result, you've coined the term, or I've certainly said that you've coined the term in my eyes of influence. Can you explain one, what the book is, why you wrote it? And then for anyone confused, what influence is? Sure. So two things kind of collided when I, when I decided to write, the, write this book. And I had written two books in the early 2010s um, on social media and email marketing. And so I've, I'd written some books before and it'd been a long time since I'd written one and I, I didn't really have any motivation to write another one. But I started really getting deep uh, here at Cornet into influence marketing strategies with some of our clients. And I was doing three or four different things, but I was trying to add layers of complexity and, and whatnot to them to make them more than just sponsoring posts with an influencer. I wanted to go deeper, get more meaningful, make sure that the, the influence partnerships were more meaningful to our clients. Um, and so I was, I thought what I was doing at the time, and I still think now was pretty good work. Um, and I wanted to tell people about those, those case studies. And at the same time, I was watching the mainstream media coverage of influencers. And the only time the mainstream media ever talks about influencers is when they find one of them screwing up or doing something wrong. And so I thought, you know, if I'm a business owner and, or I'm an entrepreneur just starting my business Uh, or I'm a marketer who doesn't necessarily play in the digital space and eat, breathe, and sleep it like I do, and I see these mainstream media outlets uh, talking about influencers in such a negative way, I'm not going to play, pay attention to influencers. I'm going to be like, yeah, I don't want to deal with the superficial and the, you know, the, 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 the duck lips peace sign, you know, ones that are just, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't want to deal with that superficial stuff. And so I thought we've got to start rethinking how we talk about influencers 
because I think the term influencer itself is actually becoming a bad word because the mainstream media only talks about them when, when it's negative. So those two things collided. I wanted to say something about the industry that would um, sort of build some more confidence uh, in the sort of middle layer of marketers and business owners out there that don't necessarily play and dabble in marketing all the time, but they need to know uh, what's effective. But I also had some case studies that I was doing, some things that were, were firing that were, that were successful. So I was thinking about these things, and then my agent called me up and said, okay, it's been eight years. You've got to, you, you, you've got to write a book, man. I know you just did a bunch of influencer marketing stuff for marketing profs. It's got to be top of mind. It's time for you to write another book. And it all kind of happened at the same time. And I was like, okay, here we go. And that's kind of why I wrote the book. And then Winfluence, uh, sort of the, the title, which is kind of just a gimmicky way of thinking about it, um, but the concept behind it really is, you know, the subtitle of the book is Reframing Influencer Marketing to Ignite Your Brand. And really what the whole concept of Winfluence is about is thinking in terms of, in, instead of thinking about influencer marketing, let's take the R out of that and call it influence marketing because what that does is it very subtly it's just a semantic change but it very subtly changes your perspective because if you think influencer marketing you're thinking about a person you're thinking about a noun you're thinking about a channel but if you're thinking about influence marketing now all of a sudden you're thinking about the action that you're trying to accomplish you're thinking about the verb you're thinking about the strategy you're thinking about your goal and that changes the perspective and it's not just that subtle change in high level perspective it actually changes how you execute because if i'm worrying about trying to influence rather than trying to find influencers now all of a sudden i can say well you know what a political lobbyist can influence for me a uh, keynote speaker at a conference uh, can can influence for me. The president of the local parent teachers association can influence for me. Now, all of a sudden, I'm not constrained to the social media or Instagram or YouTube. I can think of I'm trying to influence an audience and it sort of opens the doors for your thinking. Bingo. I love it. And I'll say this a couple of times throughout, but anyone wants to purchase your book, depending on where they're listening or watching, link is in the description. We'll mention it again before we before we sign off. You've spoken at Inbound, the HubSpot conference, if anyone's not familiar with it, um, a couple of times. 2016 is what I'm going to reference to right now. Um, you said, think of marketing. Think of a marketing decision you've made in the last 30 days was a question you posed to the audience at the beginning of your talk. And then you followed up with, think of what piece of data info led you to make that decision. Very easy for someone to answer the first part of that question. For most people, the second part of that question, they it's followed by silence. That's true. Uh, a lot of marketers make assumptions is the point you are trying to make, or at least what I think you were trying to make. Um, don't back up decisions with data. Uh, data is obviously important, but in some cases it can cost a lot of time and money. However, with social, there's such thing as social listening. Can you explain to our listeners how they might be able to leverage data or collect data without spending so much time and money in an efficient way? Yeah, that's, that's, that's very true. And, and the great thing about social listening is even though there's lots of software out there that you can pay for, and some of it's pretty expensive, some of it's accessible, but you can actually just do Google searches. That's social listening too, especially if you're focused in or go to Twitter and just do a Twitter search. So what I would like to, to encourage people to do when they think about analyzing data and making marketing decisions from data, um, for example, um, when I, uh, I was working with a brand several years ago and the brand manager was dead set and determined 
that her target audience was like 25 to 35 year old men. Um, and that was the, the, the broad, you know, sort of swath demographic that we're going after. Well, when I got into looking at the conversations on Twitter about that particular product, and when, then I went a little further and was like, well, wait a minute, let me look at the Facebook uh, profile and see what the demographic makeup there is. I looked at it and like 70% of this brand's audience were 35 to 45 year old women. And so while the male 25 to 35 was the end user that I think everyone perceived to be the user of this product, there was, and it was a a food beverage, uh, you know, uh, hospitality product. Um, There was an entire subset of slightly older females who were using it to cook, who were using it as, you know, something in the kitchen. Um, and that was a sub-segment in the, in the brand manager's mind that she didn't need to pay attention to. But the online data told me that that was the majority of the people who were at least talking about it. Now, it doesn't mean that that's the majority of the people who were using it or buying it or benefiting from it. But at least I've got that insight to go to her and say, look, if 70% of the audience online talking about this product is 35 to 45 year old women, maybe we should think about sub-segmenting out some some plans here to see if we can affect sales that way. Um, And so I did that with free tools. I was looking at Twitter conversations anecdotally, and I was looking at Facebook insights, which is free if you have a brand page. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily have to invest in a lot of research to, to get into that. I would also say that you can look at if you've got a marketing program in place, uh, Google Analytics is free. You go look at that and you can sort of see, okay, when people come to the site, what do they do? Where do they go? What does that demographic make up to? That can tell you lots of different things too. I just think that you need to have, if you're going to make a marketing decision, especially if you're going to change how you're spending money or if you're going to change messaging, um, the, the one thing that I think we do more often than not uh, in advertising campaigns is we will try something, uh, you know, maybe the copy on a, a pay-per-click ad, and we'll say, okay, well, that's not driving a great deal of clicks. Let's change the copy. Well, if the only reason you have is because the previous one wasn't was was driving X clicks versus Y clicks, that's not an insight. That's just a mm-hmm. data point. What you need to do is you need to have two or three strung together to compare and say, when we use this verb, now all of a sudden we get more. When we use that verb, it's less. So let's take that verb out and move on to the next one, right? So I just think you have to get a little bit more granular on understanding if you're going to make a decision, don't just make it on a hunch. Don't just make it because, well, that didn't work. Let's try something new. If that didn't work, understand why it didn't work. Try to figure out why it didn't work so that when you make the change, it does work. Don't just roll the dice again because rolling the dice again just means, you know, eventually you're going to crap out. There's definitely some great tools out there, both free and paid for. One that I've used in the past before is, um, and they're not a sponsor of the show, is Sprout Social. Mm-hmm. I just know the VP from EMEA uh, and, and, and they're a great tool. But again, as you said, there's a lot of free tools out there if anyone wants to use. You posted a link to a survey you, were, uh, you commented on, uh, Hype Auditor. Mm-hmm. was the recent survey I'm referencing. One of the things shared was income of Instagram influencers. Uh, I'm going to share some data with the listeners here. Influencers with uh, a follower range from 1000 to 10000 would earn, on average, $1,420 a month. And those with over a million would earn just over $15,000 a month. Now, you might think, well, that's one hell of a jump from 10 k to a million. But 
the jump from 500k to a million is also big because if we look at any influencer with 50 to 500,000 followers, they're earning about 3.5k. So on the small hand, we're about 1.5. On the medium, we're about 3.5. And then on the very large, about 15k, 15.5k. One of the things you said, well, one of the things you expressed was you expressed concern with this data. I'm curious to know why was there concern with the data? I'm, I'm with you on that hand. I just would like you to talk about it. Well, the there's, there's multiple layers of concern there. I, I, my biggest concern is that um, the, the disparity from medium to, to large follower counts is only going to inspire more of the small and medium influencers to try and, you know, you know, basically manufacture followers because if, oh, if I can get to a million, then I can make 10 times more money or I can make five times more money. I've got to get to a million, which is going to uh, perhaps motivate them to buy followers fraudulently and things like that, which is again, a, a big problem in the influence marketing space. So I think that disparity encourages more fraudulent behavior to happen. Um, but I also think it undervalues, quite frankly, the average spend on that medium tier level. It, it really undervalues uh, what those level of influencers can do for your business. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we started out a couple of years here. I work with Buffalo Trace Bourbon here at Cornette and in the United States. Nice. Um, and uh, we actually started a, about three or four years ago, we identified um, outdoor cooking and grilling as a content sort of vertical that aligned with our brand. That type of audience, you know, was the type of audience we were looking for. And we identified an influencer uh, by the name of Derek Wolf at Over the Fire Cooking. And he had these little 60 second time lapse videos that showed people kind of interesting recipes and tips on how to cook over a grill, over a fire. And um, at the time, he might have had two or 300,000 followers when we first found him. And we started doing some sponsored content with him and whatnot. And there was this sort of magical overlap of influencer audience and brand audience or influencer interest and brand interest. And when we started doing content with him, like it worked really, really well for Buffalo Trace Bourbon. It worked really, really well for him. We're in year four or five, I think, of a partnership with Derek. Now he's got well over a million followers. So the brand has grown with him in that over the time. And the value that I think the brand would put on that relationship is far more uh, than they would have put on a one-off thing with a person with a million followers five years ago. And quite frankly, we probably wouldn't approach an, uh, an influencer with a million followers today because we understand the benefit of growing with the influencer as they mm -hmm. uh, increase their reach and, 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 and awareness. That's a cool story that is growing with the influencer. Yeah. Some people might be listening to this and saying, my business isn't a sexy or trendy business, so could potentially use it as an excuse to ignore influence marketing. What are your thoughts? Agree or disagree? Well, I definitely disagree that you should ignore influence marketing because it doesn't matter what business you're in. Somebody out there uh, is your target consumer and they are impacted and influenced by someone else out there in the industry. Mm -hmm. If you look at, um, there's actually a great case study from the United Kingdom I can share with you. Uh, that's probably nice. a little bit more close to home for your audience. Uh, there's a, a facilities management company uh, in the UK called Mighty, M-I-T-I-E, I believe is how you spell it. 
Um, and for a long time, they had a reputation of being a mop and bucket company. They were just a facility supply company in everyone's mind in the, you know, the, the purchasing officers and the people who hired those types of companies. And they actually said, and, and I mean, you know, plumbing and building supplies is not sexy to me. It might be to somebody, but I don't think that's a real interesting topic. No offense to Mighty or anybody else. Um, but what they did is they said, okay, we're going to identify because they think of themselves as an a facilities management innovation brand. And they have much more than just supplies. They have software, they have other hardware, um, you know, programs and systems and services that, that a, a company can bring in and help manage the operations of what they're doing. And so they identified a bunch of influencers within the facilities management space. They wrote a report that was based on, you know, sort of here's the state of things in facilities management. And they sourced the expertise and the quotes and the insights from these influencers. So what happens when these influencers get this huge report from, you know, a company within their industry in which they're quoted? Well, they're going to share it. Right. So now all of a sudden you've got all these influential people in the facilities management space sharing this report on innovation and whatnot from Mighty, which is that company you thought of as a mop and bucket company. But wait a minute, they have this expertise on innovation within the field um, and software and hardware and solutions. Now, all of a sudden, I'm not thinking of them as a mop and bucket company anymore. They right. then uh, pulled, I think it was five, 10 or so of those influencers that they just got quotes from for this report and, you know, engaged them to come and speak about the report at conferences, you know, stand in their trade booth with them when they were out there in their, you know, trade exhibition sales seasons and things like that. And now all of a sudden the reputation gauges that they were measuring before on what do people think of us? Um, they did, I didn't really understand how they did this or what they measured, but the report that I got back from them was we changed perception values by 200%. So whatever measure they were using to say, this is what people think of us, they increased it the way they wanted to go up and to the right, if you will, by 200%. And so sexiness doesn't have anything to do with it. It has to do with are you able to lean on a third party to influence prospective customers to think differently about you, which would also include consider or try or buy your product? I love, I love that example that you shared. A couple more questions left for you, Jason. Uh, you've said before, whatever the content, long or short form, there are two things to remember. One, keep sight of the overall strategy get everyone on board top to bottom and two plan to measure. What did you mean by when you said plan to measure? You know, I, I, I use a, a, a little analogy when, when I talk about planning to measure, um, you know, when you, if you get to the end of a campaign or the end of a, the year or the quarter, whatever you're measuring, whatever time frame you're measuring, if you get to the end of it and then say, okay, how did we do? And that's the first time you thought of it then that's like getting to the end of the driveway with your family in the minivan and saying, where are we going on vacation? Right. You haven't packed, you haven't accounted for the cats. You don't have tickets anywhere. Like that's just, you can't, you can't do that without planning. Well, you can't measure accurately without planning. So when you establish your goal at the beginning of the process of the campaign or the quarter or whatever it is, then you have to say, okay, how are we going to measure to this goal throughout the campaign? 
How can we set data traps along the way to let us know how we're progressing so that we have these checkpoints to say, okay, we're moving along, you know, with this, the, the, the awareness numbers are starting to move in the right direction. The mm. traffic is starting to move in the right direction. We're starting to see some seeding of sales and whatnot. You've got to set those data traps along the way to know that as you start to unroll all of the campaign ideas, all of the programming, all of the messaging, you're going to start to see indications that it might be working. If it's not, then you can pause and say, okay, what do we need to tweak here to make it get back on track? That way you don't have to wait six months to figure out you screwed it up, right? Um, so planning to measure is simply sitting with your goal at the beginning of the process and saying, okay, at what benchmarks in time are we going to look at our data? What data are we going to look at? And before we even start, how are we going to capture that data? Um, a lot of, uh, especially in the digital world, a lot of people will say, well, I'm going to engage influencers or I'm going to do a social media campaign or an email marketing campaign or whatnot with the intention of driving traffic to a, a given landing page, let's mm -hmm. say. Well, you can share the URL to that landing page with all these different you know, places where you're going to promote it. But if you plan to measure, you're like, oh, wait a minute, let's put some UTM parameters on that link so that I can tell at any point in time when I want to check my analytics, how much traffic is coming from email versus influencers versus Facebook versus Twitter, et cetera, right? Versus our paid campaigns. Because if you do that on the front end and plan to measure, then you can, in the middle of the campaign, you can go, wow, we're getting really great uh, conversions from email. So let's keep that up. The influencer stuff is bombing. We, we either don't have the right influencers or their audiences don't care. But this paid campaign that we're doing over here on Yahoo is working pretty well. So let's divert some of that influencer money, put more money into the email and the Yahoo campaign. That way we can make sure that we're manufacturing the type of progress we, we want to do and being more efficient with our spend. It's easy to see why the likes of the Wall Street Journal and the BBC uh, <laughs> give you the credit you've been given. What's your favorite part of what you do? Oh, wow. Um, I, you know, I love solving problems. And uh, a lot of what you do in the agency world is not necessarily, you know, creating great creative or uh, coming up with fantastic strategies or whatnot. A lot of times it's just solving problems. And, mm -hmm. and they could be, I don't, I'm not getting the right data in my report to make the, in, the decisions I want. I need to fix that. So, okay, let's get into the analytics software or data studio and figure out where, where can we pull the metric that you're looking for, right? Sometimes it can be really granular problem solving that just makes the client happy. And sometimes it can be, wow, I just had this idea on how we can reposition the product to a certain audience to open up a new avenue of sales. Um, I did some social listening not too long ago, and I wish that I was working with the company at the time. I wasn't. I just did use this company as an example, um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't know if they ever used the data, but I did a social listening report on dirt devil vacuums, <laughs> and I was looking at the uh, information online about what people say they are using their dirt devil vacuums for what are the use cases and obviously when i looked at that information the biggest you know sort of if you're looking at a, a cloud a word cloud of use cases the biggest one was pet hair and then there was human hair and then there was dust and hardwood floors and things like that but then i saw this little bubble over here that said blacksmithing and i'm like blacksmithing does anybody even do that anymore and so what I did is I drilled into those conversations and started to look through and analyze them closer. 
And it turns out that the little handheld Dirt Devil vacuums mm -hmm. have a fan in it that is the perfect size to mount on a blacksmithing rig so that you're cooling off the metal as you, you know, as it's wow. malleable. And so people were buying Dirt Devil vacuums, hacking them, breaking them open, taking the fan out and using it for blacksmithing. Well, that insight to a brand manager, an enterprising brand manager, again, I don't know if Dirt Devil did anything with this because I wasn't working for them at the time, but I sent them the information, is, hey, let's take our fans and let's produce a, you know, a clip or something to mount it properly for blacksmithers and let's produce it and market it to blacksmithers. Because if they did that, then they've got this little micro community of people who suddenly think Dirt Devil is the greatest thing in the whole wide world. Wow. Two final questions for you. Your loved ones are all safe, but your house is burning down and you can only save one item. What one item is that going to be? Oh, wow. My goodness, that is a crazy question. Um, you know, I think... My, I mean, I, I hate to say like my phone or my computer because those things are replaceable. Um, my goodness, that's a great question. Um, I think... If, if there's something, to, I think what you're, what you're getting at is if there's, you know, something non-replaceable that I would grab, um, I think I would probably um, grab as many of the pictures uh, of my family, my kids, you know, mom, dad, et cetera, as I could, because nice. even though I have a lot of them digitally, there's some there that, that they're not digital that are, you know, big blow up things and whatnot. I would, I would grab those because I can't replace those as easily. Great answer. Final question is, I'd like you to imagine we're talking as if it's the year 2030 and you're looking back on the last nine, 10 years. You can answer this personally, professionally, combination of both. What would you like to be looking back on? I would like to uh, be looking back on uh, making a transition to writing uh, not marketing books. Uh, and uh, I've got a, a book project in mind right now that's kind of a true crime nonfiction thing that I'm, I'm working on. It's probably going to take me a while, but if, if 10 years from now that project is successful, I will probably be hopefully a successful, uh, you know, nonfiction writer beyond the business category and, and somewhat successful doing that. Well, I wish you all the best going forward. Thank you for your time today. Anyone interested in Jason's book, Winfluence, Reframing Influencer, Marketing to Ignite Your Brand available on Amazon. I'm assuming all other stores as well. We just use Amazon over here. I'll sure. leave a link to that below and the link that goes directly from your site. I think it's Jason Falls forward slash Winfluence. I'll leave a link to that as well. But for now, Jason, thank you for spending 35, 40 minutes with me today. Absolutely glad to do it. Thanks for having me. If your metro don't trust you, I'm gonna show you. Beautiful morning, get a sign of my morning bed.